Welcome to another edition of San Joaquin Spotlight. This is a public affairs broadcast airing on CMAC, Comcast 93 and AT&T 99 in the Fresno and Clovis area, and also on Talk Radio 1550 KXEX in the Central Valley of California. And finally, we're around the world. We're airing on Anchor FM, which is actually a product or a a company of Spotify on podcast. And our guest this week is a former ambassador. He's been involved in international relations, and we're honored to have him here. Ambassador Warlock, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we get into some of the international type affairs um, and get your take on those things happening around the world, I want to start by asking, what got you interested in foreign affairs? Sure. I've always been interested in international affairs, and I knew I was headed in that direction, although I was never sure in quite what, quite what capacity. Um, I worked for some years for the Asia Foundation based in San Francisco and then overseas. Um, however, my wife got a job with the State Department as a career foreign service officer. And after she got that job, I, we both decided, but I decided that I too would be on that career path. And I took the exam and passed all of the requirements and then joined the foreign service actually in 1985. And it's such an interesting career to get into international relations. I've, I've talked to several of your colleagues, probably former ambassadors. And, you know, tell us a little bit how, how, when you go into these discussions with other countries, you know, you've got the, our country on your shoulders, in essence, does that make you nervous or anything? Well, it was my job to represent the United States of America overseas. And I did my very best, even when sometimes I disagreed with the policies. It was my job to go into foreign governments and others and represent what the United States position is and sometimes to try to convince other countries to support our policies or that we should work together on certain things. So it's not always an easy job. Uh, even with our friends, it can be difficult to persuade them to join us in working on difficult issues uh, together. But that's part of the, the great work in the uh, U.S. Foreign Service. And I would encourage uh, any of your listeners and viewers who do have an, an interest in international relations to look at the career path of a U.S. diplomat. And it can be very exciting. It can be challenging and difficult. It can sometimes be hard on your personal life and families, but it's extremely rewarding. And uh, I have no regrets. So at some point in your career, you get the uh, notice that you're going to be ambassador of Bulgaria. Tell us, you know, where you were and what your thoughts were when you got the call or email saying, congratulations, sir, you're now ambassador to Bulgaria. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I worked many years in the Foreign Service and had many postings before an ambassadorship come, came along for me. Um, where did I hear about it? 
Well, I was actually sitting in a classroom getting ready to be the deputy ambassador to Germany. And uh, for various reasons, the position of ambassador to Bulgaria opened and um, that was quite an honor to be nominated by President Obama for that job. And uh, I served for about three years in uh, Bulgaria as the U.S. Uh, ambassador, and I was honored to do so. It was a real privilege. So let me ask you, when the president leaves, do the ambassadors go with him or her? Because is it the president that appoints? It is the president that appoints and the uh, Senate confirms. Uh, and generally, when a president leaves, all ambassadors uh, offer their resignations, at least in principle. In practice, uh, career diplomats who serve both Republicans and Democrats uh, continue to stay on. And the political appointees, those uh, who are not career diplomats, uh, resign and are uh, replaced. Generally speaking, as career dip diplomat, uh, ambassadors to serve for three years, uh, sometimes under one party, sometimes under another. So talk about the experience in Bulgaria. I mean, what, what things did you learn? What things did you accomplish? Um, how, talk about the work you did there. Well, you know, first let me just say about Bulgaria in general, because there are a lot of Americans that, that might have a hard time finding it on the on the map, um, but it is in fact a good ally of the United States uh, and a member of uh, the North Atlantic, Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, a member of the European Union, and a country that we've cooperated with on a number of issues. We have very strong relations with, with the country and that makes it a little bit easier for the ambassador, but there were still many challenges. Um, for many years, Bulgaria was a part of the Warsaw Pact and had um, been under the wing of the Soviet Union until the changes that happened in the 1990s. And when democracy came to Bulgaria, that was a challenge. So working with the Bulgarians to uh, help uh, show U.S. support for their democratic efforts uh, was important and we provided aid in a lot of ways. Um, we also worked closely with Bulgaria on energy issues. Uh, all of their energy or nearly all of their energy was dependent on Russia. And so we recognized even when I was ambassador that no country should be dependent on any one other country. And so we worked with the Bulgarians to help them build their energy independence from uh, particularly from Mos Moscow and also for uh, uh, various reasons, Bulgaria is a, a hub for natural gas. And so we've worked with them to provide gas supplies uh, throughout the, the, the Balkans region. Um, we, we also have a long-standing uh, military relationship. We provide military assistance to the Bulgarians and the Bulgarians have a, 
uh, a base that they do allow US and NATO forces to use. And that's become more important than ever, um, being on the Black Sea, being close to Russia, being able to, so that we can protect our interest and if necessary, deploy our forces. We use it mainly as a training base, but it is available to us. Uh, we also have an interest in peace and security in Europe. And if you recall, the Balkans was not always as stable as it is today and went through some very difficult times. And Bulgaria was an important partner in working through those peace and security issues. Another area too is simply the people to people relationship. Um, you know, there's no better way to get to the to get to know the United States than, than for foreigners to visit us and to see for themselves, particularly in areas like the, 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 the Central Valley of California. You shouldn't only come to Washington DC or New York City or Las Vegas and think that that's the United States. We have a great country and there's a lot to see. And I think when foreigners do see it, they're impressed by the vibrancy of our society. So. Those kinds of people-to-people -people contacts are something that I really believe in. And I also believe that it's helpful for, for Americans to travel outside of our country and see some of the challenges in other countries and to have that kind of cultural experience. And I think when you return home after that kind of experience, you're a much richer person and your uh, world perspective is 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 much more attuned than sitting at home and, and and watching world events on the television. So I actually spent a lot of time working on those people to people issues, and I'm 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 proud of some of the things that I did. I even um, had a role in a very popular television show in Bulgaria, which is an odd thing for an ambassador. To ambassador to do. But in fact, uh, I played the role of the U.S. ambassador of all things, uh, <laughs> but it was a very positive role. And I, I said to people in Washington, how can we reach more people than being on one of Bulgaria's most popular television shows? People that don't even know or care about foreign policy issues with the United States would often recognize me and they say, oh, I saw you on television on that show. <laughs> and I said, yes, that was me. I'm glad That's, you watched. <laughs> what a great story. And you know what? I would love to in the future have you back just to talk about Bulgaria because it sounds like there is so much there. So FYI, months down the road, I might invite you back for the Bulgaria discussion. But I wanted to talk to you here because, you know, you were very involved in Azerbaijan, Armenia, and then you were also a part of the special envoy to India and Pakistan. So very much two countries that disagree with each other. You were kind of front lines and on the ground. Were you surprised when Azerbaijan, you heard Azerbaijan had struck sovereign Armenia, not Nagorno-Karabakh? You know, I, uh, I worked on Armenia and Azerbaijan for, for several years. And my role was to work with several other countries to try to bring about a, a lasting peace. Um, the best that we could do would be 
to try to control the violence and, and try to prevent a larger uh, conflict. But it was a big challenge. Um, I know you have many uh, viewers and listeners who are Armenian Americans, many of them uh, who immigrated to the United States settled in the Central Valley of, of, of California. And I know many Armenian Americans are just appalled by what they're seeing on the ground that um, Azerbaijan would, would launch direct attacks on, on, on Armenia. Does it come as a surprise? No, I don't think that it does. Uh, there was a, a war that, uh, conflict that uh, in principle settled some borders uh, with Nagorno-Karabakh, but in fact, those borders are not demarcated either with Armenia or uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And that's one of the challenges for diplomats today to demarcate those uh, borders and to protect the vulnerable populations. So when I was working on it, it was a very big diplomatic uh, challenge. And I would travel to Armenia and Azerbaijan regularly and meet with the leaders of both countries uh, to try to get the sides to see reason, but that wasn't always possible. They did accuse each other of violating the ceasefire, uh, many other, th other things. Uh, so it's, it, it's a tragedy really that what's happening now. And, and I think we're going to have to be especially concerned as Americans for the uh, safety and security, especially of uh, civilian populations in uh, Ar Armenia as time goes on. Um, the, the solution to this, of course, is that there needs to be a lasting peace that uh, the negotiations need to be successful and that the United States needs to engage. And I fully support the work of uh, diplomats now to do just that. So let me ask you, sir, the, when you were traveling and you worked on the ground with those two countries, it, when they accuse each other of violating the ceasefire, is there a way we could tell who who started it? I mean, how do you and how do you go about investigating something like that? Because I get some people telling me, well, we don't know who fired first. And so it's always a challenge, isn't it? It is a challenge. We don't have people on the ground. Even the international organization that 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 oversees the monitoring does not have monitors directly in place. So it's very hard to know who fired the first shot? Who provoked whom? Now, in the most recent violence that's just happened over the last uh, few weeks, it appears that Azerbaijan is trying to seize the high ground for, at least they believe, their own security, to have a security buffer with Armenia. Whether they fired the first shot, it's hard to know, but they certainly are aggressing, aggressively moving to seize that high ground and create that security buffer. And uh, there needs to be a ceasefire and a negotiating process uh, to deal with that. You know, Armenia has a very difficult uh, history. Uh, the past hundred years and more have not been kind to Armenia and the difficulties even today are, 
uh, are great and challenging. But what we have seen is that the Armenians are very resilient and resourceful uh, people and they'll fight for their country and they have done so. Uh, we don't want to see war. We want this peace process to work, but uh, don't underestimate the Armenians who are really fighting for their country right now. You are listening to San Joaquin Spotlight. This is a public affairs broadcast. It's airing on CMAC, Comcast 93 and AT&T 99 in the Fresno Clovis area. We're also in the Central Valley of California. Thank you to those listening all over the valley on Talk Radio 1550 KXCX. And to those around the world listening to Anchor FM, which is a product of Spotify, podcast. Our guest this week is former ambassador to Bulgaria, and he a career diplomat. He has been involved in special envoys, special projects. Ambassador Warlock, welcome to the program again, sir. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a great conversation with you. Thank you for having me. We're so glad that you're here with us. I want to ask you about, there's news coming from India, that India has agreed to sell weapons to Armenia for self-defense purposes. Do you think that this latest aggression by Azerbaijan has caused the world to kind of pay more attention? Because, you know, I was born in the United States. I love America. This is such a great country. And we are providing people and refugees a better life. And I'm a firm believer of that. But a part of me still follows Armenian news because our families were kicked out after the genocide. And then the Middle East civil war, our families were kicked out again. And here is where we find refuge and we find a life that we can take care of our families and our children. And so I I do follow Armenian news. And when I hear that now around the world, people are saying that maybe Azerbaijan is the aggressor it does make me feel good that there's a light shining in that part of the region. Do you think that the latest aggression has put a spotlight on Armenia and Azerbaijan? Well, yes, I do. And I, I agree with all the sentiments that you just um, mentioned. And I know many Armenians would, uh, especially Armenian Americans, would agree with everything that you said. Um, there was a war that was fought over Nagorno-Karabakh, um, where many of the territories that had been occupied by Armenia were taken by Azerbaijan. They call them the occupied territories, and they have said repeatedly that that's Azerbaijan land. But now they're going further, and it's not clear how much further they intend uh, to go or what borders they tend to uh, respect. And I think that the international community is standing up and taking notice of that and uh, are calling on the parties, Armenia and Azerbaijan, to come to a peaceful settlement and to work through these issues. The United States has done some extraordinary things just within the past week. A new special envoy uh, to the region, a senior American diplomat, Nancy Pelosi, uh, visited the, the, the region and said some very positive things about Armenia when she was there with other members of Congress. 
the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, just hosted his counterparts parts at the White House. Those are all positive steps. And there are other countries that are doing the same. Uh, we need to be involved. We need to push the parties towards a settlement. And we need to push countries such as Turkey and Russia to the extent that we can these days, um, countries that have an interest like India, neighboring countries, uh, to help to bring about a settlement. Uh, the European Union is act actively involved in Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. These are all good signs. And um, we just hope that the, the, the parties that have been at odds for decades now can find a way to bring about uh, peace. In fact, peace will be you know, advantageous not only for Armenia, but also for Azerbaijan. Both countries are spending significant amounts of, of money, but also you know, blood uh, in terms of trying to continue this conflict. Um, wouldn't it be great to see that, you know, the you know, trade restored in the region and open borders again? We're a ways from that, uh, but we should be striving for that. And I think it will bring greater prosperity uh, to the region and certainly to uh, Armenia. I'm going to ask you a tough question, sir, but okay. something tells me that you've had tough conversations in your career with the work that you've done. Do you think that the international community would allow Azerbaijan to take over sovereign Armenia or parts of it? And the reason I ask the question is there's a map circulating that now Azerbaijan and Turkey are saying that the southern part of Armenia is not really Armenia. It's what's called the Zangazor Quarter. And so their, their maps are showing that there's this new republic forming in southern Armenia. Now, there's a lot of problems with that, obviously, but then you you do that and you cut off ties with Iran. And I know that Iranian and uh, U.S. relations haven't been the best, but you know, there's other countries that would have a stake if southern Armenia disappears. Do you think that the international community would allow such an action? There's an important principle in modern international affairs and that is countries respect the borders of other countries. That's why you're seeing a war in Ukraine uh, today. We would not accept the possibility of having, uh, you know, and that would, in, that, uh, it, any infringement on the sovereignty of, of uh, Armenia, because it's up to Azerbaijan to respect its international obligations and the borders that are recognized. Now, I have to say that the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, is not as clear as the borders of California. Uh, these are not demarcated uh, borders and both sides are arguing sometimes based on old maps that they that certain territories belong uh, to them. There's also uh, an agreement following the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh that Azerbaijan will have a corridor 
from those territories to Nakhichevan, uh, which is a part of Azerbaijan. And what does that corridor look like? And what does it mean? It's certainly not the size of a province, but what is that corridor? Those are things that need to be negotiated and not fought out on the battlefield. And I think that the United States, certainly the European Union, NATO, OSCE, are gonna put a lot of pressure uh, on the parties to come to the table. And if Azerbaijan uh, 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 violates its international obligations, a great deal of pressure on Azerbaijan to uh, honor its uh, commitments. We are running out of time this week on the program, sir. I definitely am going to invite you back in several months. We have a lot of Indian American listeners. The region of Central Valley has a diverse population, and we're seeing a, a lot more Indian Americans who would be very interested in your work in the India-Pakistan situation. But coming back to Armenia, one final question for, for you regarding Armenia. You know, I was raised and and I still believe that the United States is the superpower or one of the strongest or the strongest mm -hmm. militaries out there. Do you think with Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you have to look at this as a strong message, especially if you're Armenian American, that the third most powerful person in this country visited Armenia. Do you think that that will get Azerbaijan, who was run by the Aliyev family, to back off? Or do you think that that just emboldens, emboldens them? It, 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 the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia is a very emotional issue in Azerbaijan. And things that you and I may think are reasonable uh, are in fact very emotional issues. You know, there was a time that Armenians and Azerbaijanis lived side by side in peace and security. There was an Armenian community in Azerbaijan and vice versa. It's hard to see that today because of the emotion in the issue and the history that's gone behind, behind us. So this is not simply a matter of politics for Azerbaijanis or for President Aliyev himself. This is a matter of nationhood, of pride, of, of their uh, reason for being. Armenians feel the same way about many issues towards you know, Turkey, for example. And you know, these are emotional issues that have been very, that built up over generations in both countries. So one visit is not going to, you know, uh, change that. But these visits are important because they demonstrate U.S. engagement. And you mention, you know, U.S. as a superpower. Sometimes when you watch the evening news, you get the impression that, you know, the U.S. is no longer, you know, a force in, in, in the world the way that, mm -hmm. you know, we saw it maybe when we were growing up. But that's simply not true. Uh, the United States is, uh, has the strongest voice in the world, is still the most powerful country, is still the richest country in the world. And despite many countries that criticize the United States, we are the people that 
that, that they want to be. Just look at the immigration lines mm-hmm. to come to the United States. Yep. Um, that alone should tell you something. Not that we don't have our problems, not that, you know, domestically, you know, we have, you know, issues to deal with. In inter- international affairs, we have our challenges. Of course we do. But that doesn't change what we stand for. And the world does know what we stand for and respects us for that. And we have to remember that, uh, that when we act in the world, we act as you know, a voice, a voice for democracy, uh, a voice for human rights, uh, a voice for people who have immigrated to the United States. And people do respect that. And, and, and it's sometimes easy to lose perspective. I, I know that that's not entirely an answer to your question, but I think it was important to put out there that, uh, um, that we mean our voice counts for a lot. And what an excellent way, sir, to end the program with those wonderful comments. And I agree with you, by the way. Thank you to the audience members listening to this broadcast on Talk Radio 1550 KXEX and also watching on CMAC, Comcast 93 and AT&T 99. And to those listening around the world on Anchor FM's podcast venue, our guest this week has been former ambassador to Bulgaria and an individual that's been involved in some of the conflicts that you're seeing on television, on news today. Ambassador Warlick, such a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks again for having me, and please do invite me back. That's all for this edition of San Joaquin Spotlight. Tune in next week to a new edition. This program was made possible in part by FaceLogic Essential Skin Care and Spa in Clovis.